Hey everybody, thanks for coming back. Really appreciate it. Uh, this is episode two of What's It Mean to Be an Instructional Designer? And I am your host. Host? Yeah, I guess that's it. Uh, I'm Amy Powers. Um, so if you listen to the first episode, which uh, is likely the only reason you'd be listening to the second one, um, uh, you know, the, the. If you listen to the first episode, uh, you heard all about um, the study I was doing last semester. And what we're going to get into in this episode is what I was studying, or how the study happened. I was actually, yeah, that's it. What we're going to get into in this episode is how the study went down, right? And, well, at least part of it, right? Because today we're going to be talking about the first part of it, which was uh, the assignment was this unobtrusive uh, data collection. And like I said in the first episode, generally speaking, that would have been done via some kind of like observation, right? You know, like I would have like sat there and watched people do something. Uh, in this case, I guess I would have sat there and watched people do instructional design and make these observations without necessarily being a participant. Um, that's not the only way to do unobtrusive data collection. And in fact, that's obviously not what I did this year because uh, in this assignment, because uh, COVID was happening and it was uh, honestly quite impossible to do um, that type of unobtrusive data collection. Uh, also, I'm an online student, right? I'm a distance student, um, Old Dominion's in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. I live in Dallas, Texas, or close to Dallas, Texas. And uh, yeah, so not necessarily gonna be on campus for that particular kind of activity. Uh, so anyway, um, initially when I made the research proposal, I thought I was gonna do some like Twitter analytics, right? You know, looking at hashtag instructional design. Um, and then I was like, one, um, I, I started looking into how to do the hashtag analysis and Dr. Lau, who's, uh, who I've had for a number of classes at Old Dominion is probably going to kill me, but I, I completely forgot how to do the advanced Twitter analytics. And, um, I was able to do some, you know, like kind of broad searching, um, of Twitter analytics, you know, uh, but I wasn't able to get into any of the nitty gritty stuff, which I, I think I would have needed to do that properly. And I was kind of like... The weird thing about this assignment, the whole of the assignment, was I was really trying to be dedicated to the process, like to really do it properly, not because uh, of any grade or, or whatever. I just I just kind of wanted to really give it, you know, my all, right? I mean, uh, that's, um, yeah, I thought that was important. So, because I wanted to do this, like I wanted to ultimately get to this point where I could talk about this with some level of certainty at least certainty in what I found and certainty in the way I was communicating it to you. So what I wound up chosen, uh, I, I, I turned away from Twitter and what I wound up doing uh, is I went to LinkedIn, right? And I had the idea, what if I uh, just looked at what the instructional design job postings say they do, right? And so that's exactly what I did. So uh, what we're gonna do is in this episode here, uh, I'm gonna go through this paper again, just like I did last time. You know, so some of this might be, uh, I'm kind of reading off of my paper. So sometimes I might be reading verbatim. Other times I might be uh, uh, giving you a little bit of exposition. So, so if it sounds clunky, I'm sorry, but um, yeah, I'm trying to do this the best way I think I can. 
Um, so yeah, without further ado, here we go. So if you remember from the first episode, I was uh, doing a phenomenological, phenomenological study, which is, I, I cannot stand the way that word sounds, but basically a phenomenological study is the study of a phenomena, right? Uh, and the phenomena is something, you know, we, we often think, think of phenomena as like, you know, oh, lights in the sky, or uh, I, at least I have this... Uh, I have this vision of like Our Lady of Fatima. You know, if you went to Catholic school, you would have heard about this. But, uh, you know, which was, you know, the sun dancing across the sky for children in a South American country. I, I can't remember which one off the top of my head. Uh, but that's what, that's for whatever reason exactly what I think of when I think of um, phenomena. Uh, but it's uh, phenomena is actually just kind of a, uh, a term used to describe a thing, right? And, and Cresswell in his text gets into some uh, you know much deeper meanings of what a phenomena is but when I was reading through it um, I felt one of the things about phenomena is you can say uh, you can like essentially say what do you think about this thing that happened and anyone that's had experience with that specific thing in this case the phenomena right uh, would be able to tell you their experience about it. So it differs from like a case study, where a case study, you're very specifically putting up kind of like boundaries as to what is the case, right? You know, so, you know, it might have been more appropriate if like I was looking for uh, what does it mean to be an instructional designer in higher ed? That's a case, right? Um, but I was more interested in what does it mean to be an instructional designer ambiguous right like meaning broader right you know I, I didn't necessarily want to put boundaries up um and i think you'll see why as i'm getting in, as i get into the depth here uh so so basically uh the phenomena we're studying is is instruct is being an instructional designer right you know so anyone that's done that job essentially has the experience to do so so you know, the basic idea of the study was to understand the lived experience of the instructional designer in their, within the context of their professional lives, right? You know, like as much as um, I really care about the people that participated and I care about well, almost anyone, right? I mean, realistically, um, the study was focused kind of on their professional lives. So in, in a sense, it was pretty focused in here. But I think you'll see right pretty quickly... Um, well, at least in the subsequent episodes, you know, that professional lives thing winds up expanding a bit. Um, so as you know, in as you heard in the first episode, and as I'll repeat here, um, the second part of the, the assignment I was given last semester was to do a focus group and interviews, one-on-one uh, -on -one interviews. Uh, but before speaking with the individual uh, designers, um, both in the individual individualized and the folks group setting, I felt like it might have been it might be important to understand what the professional expectations of an instructional designer are from an industry perspective. Uh, so essentially to address that interest, I performed a search of available open instructional design positions reported on the social media platform LinkedIn. Shocking. Right. Uh, so uh, LinkedIn is the self-declared social network for working professionals. And as as so has a wealth of information on open job positions within the field of instructional design. As my research plan was to use LinkedIn to help facilitate the additional methods of this research proposal, 
I chose to limit my unobtrusive data collection to LinkedIn as well. And essentially that means that the way I was communicating with the people who were going to participate in the later parts of the study was also through LinkedIn, right? You know, so through direct messages there. So in a way, my entire study is based around LinkedIn. That sounds weird now that I'm saying it that way, but it's true. Um, so leveraging the job search function of the platform, I queried the term instructional designer, right? Uh, I didn't do any initial filtering. It was like, you know, nationwide. Um, and the immediate thing that came back was uh, over 3,000 job postings in the United States alone, uh, which have been placed on the platform in the last 30 days. And honestly, that's, um, that's incredible, but it was also incredibly daunting. I wasn't expecting that many, um, I wasn't expecting that many things to come back. So that's really amazing in a way. Um, so, but uh, at the same time, I, um, the scope of the project I was working on was, you know, a semester long. I had like, a, I had two weeks to essentially do this project and write a, uh, 3000 page, uh, 3000 word, um, essay, right. Or 3000 word paper. Right. Um, so additionally, I also didn't have the ability to export the, uh, that, that, high a number of search results like it, it like linkedin does not have the means to just like csv every job opening so what i did was i opted to reduce the time span of the date posted which is a specific field to just the last seven days uh, and what i got out of that was uh, you know also uh, an incredible 580 total results um so i, I thought again of maybe invent uh of I thought again of maybe shrinking it down to just last 24 hours, which, you know, so LinkedIn, when you look up a job, it's, it does 30 days, seven days, 24 hours. Right. And I was, it was maybe thinking that would, um, be good, you know, to get me down to a limit, but it, it wound up being limiting. I wound up only get 21 specific results. Most of them were ads, uh, ads for the appropriate type of job, but I don't know how I felt about ads. So I wound up, um, deciding, um, I, I wound up deciding that 21 results was not good enough for my sample size. Uh, so I chose to use the uh, last seven days, which was the 580 results. I still didn't have the means to actually review all of that, right? Um, so I had to kind of come up with another way to like, you know, dial it down some more. So once I accepted the initial filtering, I deliberately selected to review the job postings, which appeared on the first page of results, the 12th. Uh, the 12th page of results, which was the midpoint, and the 23rd page of results, which was the final page of results. Um, I just copy and pasted the pertinent data from each job posting into an Excel spreadsheet um, so as to place the data into a you know table format for easier comparison. Uh, and I'll, I'll actually put that Excel spreadsheet, just so you can see it if you want to, uh, in the link uh, in the description of the show here. So truth be told, it, it would have been, it would be more likely it would be more uh, you know like speaking to the point of the unobstructive unobtrusive data collection it probably would have been better to be in the actual workplace so i can compare what like actual work looked like compared to what people say their actual work is uh, but that wasn't possible so um the basic th specific thought process in performing this activity was to understand the way professional instructional designer positions are represented in job descriptions um, for available job uh, designer instructional designer openings, and 
so the reason I think this is uh, interesting is is because the people that are hiring instructional designers um, and writing those job descriptions, well, like, you know, I write job descriptions and while I might write the job description, I am not necessarily the person initially screening the candidates uh, uh, or talking to the candidates initially. It's, you know, a TR person. It's a business person. You know, so it's um it's kind of, it's interesting in that I, while I'm always uh, involved in like, you know, kind of a final interview situation, at least in my professional experience, I did think it was, it's interesting that like, you know, you wind up having this very like weird, like kind of filtered view of, you know, and a filtered view of what an instructional designer is by these job postings. And I thought that was actually a good way to go about doing this portion of the study. And so that's why I kind of used it, right? Um, so there's a, you know, a, the, you know, in the, in the thing, uh, in the um, Excel I'll include here, you know, I, I more or less place the job motivating data into some columns to do some basic coding. So, you know, job title, company, company size, location, uh, whether or not it was remote work, number of LinkedIn applicants, uh, the job description itself, the requirements, uh, the search page number, whether it was a promoted post, uh, what position level it was listed at, the type of industry, the employment type, the specific job functions, and whether or not the salary was listed, which, spoilers, it almost never was, uh, right? Uh, so when I did the, when I went through the total, uh, those like, you know, three pages I described of the notes, I came down to having 24 job openings kept within the study, um, which were, which were spread out. Um, and, and, and more or less what I did was I put that all in Excel, Excel spreadsheet and used descriptive coding to more or less, you know, take tallies of the things that I found. Right. So, you know, what did I find? Right. You know, what I found was, <laughs> What I found was insane, right? Like, I mean, just like not <laughs> what I found was pretty ridiculous, right? Like, there was a tremendous amount of just, ugh. Yeah, so, I mean, there are a few, from the data, there were a few very striking patterns found throughout these job descriptions, most notable of which was likely the sheer breadth or breadth of responsibilities expected of an instructional designer, uh, even in positions listed at entry level, right? I mean, like, it, it, in jobs that they specifically list as entry level, they have absolutely no salary information, you know, but they have absurd requirements. Um, so let me give you, uh, like, a, a, an illustrative example, if you will. So um, an illustrative... Uh, the job description, so, so one of the companies, um, actually, I won't even name it, right? So there was a company within the, um, there was an in, uh, company, actually, I will name it, uh, this, whatever. Uh, so InSync, right, which is uh, was one of the companies that were uh, found there, right? Uh, not the band, no, but uh, InSync, yeah. Um, the position title that they had listed was a senior instructional designer, right? Um, but the job details specifically indicated that the position was considered entry level. 
So I'm not sure how you could be a senior anything, but still be entry level. So like there's a whole conversation about the naming of instructional design positions. Because uh, like in this, if you're a senior instructional designer, you would probably assume that there would be junior instructional designers or associate associate instructional designers or entry level. But if it's if it's all entry level, then I'm not sure what senior indicates there. Uh, the detailed job description uh, that InSync provided specifically mentioned managerial tasks, broad levels of extensive task analysis and assessment building, uh, daily graphic design requirements, and a familiarity with processes within the information technology space. Uh, so if that wasn't enough, again, this is entry level, if that wasn't enough, the job required a higher education degree and several years of experience. Um, you know, so right there, and this kind of gets back to what I said yesterday about the description of what it means to be an instructional designer, you've got this really incredibly multifaceted, you know, you're doing task analysis, you're doing managerial tasks, um, you're doing like physical graphic design work, right? And then it would appear, at least in the job description, that you're kind of expected to also um, be familiar with processes within the information technology space. Which I don't know about you. I work the I work at a kind of high tech company, if you will, and the IT space is complex, very complex, and so I just don't even know what that. I do, it would be hard for me to understand what they mean by that without being in front of the person already being there for an interview, and that's such a weird thing because, you know, if you're putting your application somewhere, um, you know, you you probably want to know, um, you probably want to be able to prepare to go into that. Uh, interview with some basic understanding of what what this is all about right and right off the bat th this job position does not seem like it, I have no idea what they want I mean I mean you can kind of guess some things but it's so broad that it's impossible to really go in there being like oh yeah I got you right because yeah uh, the problem the bigger problem probably is the instance here this this in sync job right is that it's not unique, right? Um, it would appear that, the, you know, appeared that the expectations put on instructional designer are incredibly varied and ultimately require a vast portfolio of previous experience. Um, an additional pattern within the, the non-obstructured data uh, capture um, that shed light on my idea of total research purpose, which was to figure out what it means to be an instructional designer, uh, was the preponderance of remote work capabilities and uh, subsequently the employment type. So again, we're here, it's COVID-19. It's not surprising maybe to see more remote work, comp uh, remote work comp um, capabilities. Um, but I think these two elements, the fact that an instructional designer can either be full-time or contract, right, and have share the same responsibilities essentially, or be expected to be in-person or remote with in some cases, like very little flexibility, uh, you know, illustrates the very nature of the instructional designer's potential work life and their perception of their career, right? You know, some people are working at home 100% of the time or they're doing gig work, right? And other people, maybe like myself and people maybe that are in higher ed or, or other industry, you know, they're doing it every day. They're, they're going into a big office building. Um, it's, it's just different, right? Um, so, I mean, I recognize that it's possible that due to COVID-19, and it's, 
actually probable due to COVID-19, that I, I did this study in a unique time and space, right? And, and my data is going to be skewed based off that. So I get that. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, I think what it, one thing that's interesting there is that maybe the preponderance of jobs, because there were tons of jobs available, was that the skill set was seen as being uniquely in demand during COVID-19. That's possible. Um, but but without a doubt, what it definitely showed was that their livelihood of an instructional designer, at least my interpretation of what it, my interpretation of what it showed is that, you know, the instructional designer is living in a a state of like unique flux, right? Like it's a bit all over the place. And as I reflected on it, you know, overall, I feel like the exercise informed my understanding of the challenges set forth upon professional instructional designers. I mean, you look at some of these descriptions and requirements, and I found myself saying, like, often, like, damn, that's, that's crazy. You know, when you match the descriptions, uh, when you match those descriptions, though, with positions that are considered entry level, like, as I kind of already stated, as was often the case, I wonder how much of these job postings like, are just fluff and how much of it is real, right? Um, there was a really interesting one from Tiffany uh, Company, right, which is uh, you know, that super high-end um, jewelry company in New York City, right? And, you know, Tiffany, Tiffany's was had a promoted post um, they, for an instructional designer. Uh, again, they listed it as entry-level, Right. And so you're, you're in New York City, your entry level, uh, you know, it was a internal sales training, uh, which I thought that was interesting in itself, you know, because like um, <coughs> that's, you know, not your typical, I guess maybe maybe it is, but it's not necessarily your typical HR duty um, kind of um, uh, instructional design gig. Uh, but, it, you know, this person was in the HR department, but they were doing sales training, so training the salespeople. Um, and so what's interesting that I thought was funny was, you know, so again, entry-level position at Tiffany's in New York City, and the job posting was like, quote, you will be able to influence people at all levels of the organization. And, like, that's so, like, buzzworthy, cringy. I don't even know what to say about that, you know, because it's like, oh, yeah, the entry level instructional designer is going to influence the people at Tiffany's across. Like, I, you know, like in a way, like, cool, like that would be great if that was true. But like, how could that be true? Like, I don't know. Maybe I'm being naive about it. Maybe I'm being uh, persnickety or whatever way you want to look at it. But it just seems like that's not a I did not feel like if you're an entry level position are you are you really going to be influenced people at all levels of organization? I just that seems like fluff to me, right? It, it doesn't seem like an actual um, thing that you'll be doing in your work. And like, is that not the thing you want in a job description? Like when you are looking for jobs, um, like are you are you looking uh, for jobs that specific? Like if I had a person. Uh, give me a resume that was like, I can influence people at all levels of the organization. I would immediately ask them, how are you going to do that, right? Um, so like, 
and maybe they'd have a good answer for you. So now I'm, I'm almost like talking myself out of being so against this, I guess. But I just don't think that's something that a person could really speak to without knowing what the organization is like, right? But that's just me. Um, the other thing that like really struck me that I think is a, a, like kind of a dangerous precedent, well, dangerous, but you know, there was absolutely no transparency in pay scales for instructional designers, right? And I thought that was like pretty lame, right? There was exactly one company uh, of the 24 that I chose uh, who, was w- who was willing to post a salary range and it was really low, it was in the, you know, the 40 or $50,000 range. Um, and, you know, again, required college degree, required uh, years of experience, uh, and that one specifically, the one that was looking, willing to pay forty or fifty thousand, was requiring a master's degree, and so you've got this really weird. Like I feel like you've got this like really weird paradoxical kind of um, look at this whole thing because you're like, oh, uh, you need a master's degree, uh, but we're gonna pay you fifty thousand dollars. Oh, but there's also three thousand open positions posted on LinkedIn in the last thirty days. That's a thousand positions a day. Like I don't even know if there's that many instructional designers to fill those positions. Uh, you know, so if we're talking about supply and demand here, uh, it would seem to me that, uh, and, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but. I, maybe I, I have no idea how many instructional, but I mean, like, you know, like there's not that many in my organization. Uh, there's not that many in my uh, degree program at school. I don't know how. I honestly don't know how many there are out there in the field, um, but maybe there's more than I'm thinking. And maybe 3,000 job opening positions is a, is a small number, and these positions are competitive. Uh, but man, uh, Needing a master's degree and not making more than fifty k—that seems rough, and I, I don't I don't know if that's the way to go unless they're doing some like weird like you know pay for your college kind of situation, um, you know. So another takeaway from it, you know, from all the job descriptions I look through, it's you know it's either that the profession itself, the instru- instructional design profession, is poorly understood in industry, or the the work that an instructional designer. Uh, is doing is so highly varied uh, that the the cause essentially causes the job descriptions to be so vast Um, uh, or again maybe the vastness of the job responsibilities is uh, representative of a crowded applicant market and it's a means for a job posting a company posting a job uh, to weed out lesser talent it's I don't know I don't uh, you know (laughs) perhaps we need to do more and more industry analysis to, to get the answers to some of these questions. Um, and yeah, you know, so like there, it's, um, and you know, while we're talking about, while I'm talking about, let me, let me just go through a couple of these job description things that, that came up in the uh, coding, which I thought was, you know, these are just like ones that popped out and were like, oh man, yeah, you know, so, um, you know, first, first one, you know, there's a lot of, um, I'm just going to say, like, call it like millennial speak, and I'm a millennial uh, in in the designated term of it. But I, I think sometimes when we write, when people are writing job descriptions now, they're they're being like super on the marketing side of it, and not necessarily on the meat and the meat side of it, right? Um, the meat side of it, which is ironic, as I'm a vegan, uh, <laughs> but 
you know, like, so one thing is like highly effective facilitation and presentation skills. Okay. You know, like that's something that makes sense. Um, but the next one is like ability to execute innovative solutions. You know, so like that sounds like creativity, you know, okay, I can get down with some of that. Um, but then, you know, right, right after that, you've got um, uh, can effectively manage change and shift gears comfortably. Highly effective in ambiguous environments and able to produce maximum results with little direction and guidance. Here's the, like, this one description, right, is so, like, the reality is I totally get what that means. Because, like, that is my day all the time, right? You know, you've got these super ambiguous requirements or questions or comments. And then you you have to maximize the results. You have to produce from those ambiguous uh, environments and you have to produce the results and like the thing is I totally understand that but I also cannot believe it's in a job description there's something so like you know systematically uh, or systemically wrong with that that I can't I can't wrap my head around it um, yeah so here's another one from an entry-level position which was just incredible so demonstrated ability to leverage external and internal resources uh, and a people network to execute quickly, effectively, and con consistently in a fast-paced business environment, right? So there's just so much, like, you know, like, HR speak to that, that, you know, okay, you've got to use internal and external people, right, to get a big job done in a fast-paced, oh, and by the way, this is another entry-level position. So, like, I think it's genuinely hilarious there's so many entry-level positions that you know need proven ability to manage multiple projects and uh, competing priorities like that's the baseline right and, and if it's entry level how can you have proven ability right like entry level uh, I, I think what's happening at this point is entry level means entry level in the company and not entry level from your skill set position right and I think that's a weird um, paradigm, right, that's going on here. So where that part was like, the all of those were like descriptions of the job, the specific job requirements, like the requirements to be considered a position, are kind of like equally out of control, right? You know, so like right off the bat, knowledge of agile scrum methodology and program management with ability to execute effectively. Like I have an MBA, right? So uh, you know, I have a lot of training in Agile and Scrum and Lean and, uh, you know, organizational behavior and organizational management. And, and you know, so like I, I went to school for that and got a degree. But is that the norm for instructional designers? I don't think so. Right. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't know. Does an instructional designer also have to be a PMP? Uh, that to me, the answer should be no. Right. That, that sounds wild right um almost every entry-level position had three to five years of instructional design experience as a requirement again speaking to the if you need three to five years of experience how is that possibly entry level and i think the reason that it's entry level is ultimately because the pay is going to be low right i think entry level i feel is a hint at low pay here you go right um but you know some of the things that were like really interesting was like the, the tool sets that are expected, right? You know, so some a lot of them were pretty normal. You know, Adobe Captivate, Storyline, Camtasia, you know, authoring tools and stuff. But but other ones are just like, 
you know, and like you know, pretty typical things like Word and PowerPoint. But the other ones were in you know, like incredible. You know, so you're sitting there and you're like, okay, you need to know, Captivate, Storyline, Camtasia. This one had those three, as well as Photoshop, Premiere, Illustrator, InDesign, and After Effects. Okay, so here's the way that I see that, right? And it specifically said advanced levels of skill in those things. And we get into this thing of what does it mean to be an instructional designer? And we're gonna talk about this with the, the people that are gonna be in the subsequent episodes, but you know, like this one right here is a perfect example of what, why this is a challenge. Because Photoshop, Premiere, Illustrator, InDesign, and After Effects are graphic design tools. Okay, they just are, right? Uh, and in Adobe Captivate and Storyline and Camtasia, those are those are essentially e-learning development tools, right? You know, but again, is an instructional designer a person that's making slides, or is an instructional designer the person that is determining the best instructional method? Because recognize, as soon as you decide to use Captivate or Storyline or Camtasia, you're making a choice in the instructional method, right? Your, your, your modality, right? You're, you're making a choice in your modality, right? And the choice in modality, the choice in method is instructional design from my perspective, right? Like that in itself was was the that choice to work in Camtasia, to work in Storyline, that would have been a decision based off of the training needs analysis, right? Based off of what the goal of the training event is. When we say instructional designers only work in Storyline or only work in Captivate, we are essentially saying that we, like the medium, the method is going to be using this medium. And, and that's honestly web-based um, instruction, right? Asynchronous instruction, right? And, and there's some, obviously, that you don't necessarily only use Storyline or Camtasia or Captivate for web-based instruction or, or asynchronous instruction, but uh, you kind of almost always do. You know, so you've got this very weird thing because I don't immediately go to that in terms of thinking that's what an instructional designer does, but some people do. And then the, the reality of the matter is right after that, it's advanced level skill with Photoshop, Premiere, Illustrator, InDesign, and After Effects. That, that to me is just, you're asking for like six different people in that, right? Because Premiere and After Effects are like, you know, like Photoshop and Illustrator, those are professional tools in themselves. You know, like, and to say advanced level of skill, what does that mean, right? Because if you're an advanced uh, Photoshop person or you're an advanced Illustrator person, like, you're probably working as a graphic designer, right? You, that is likely what you're doing, right? And, and graphic designers are a thing, right, on their own, right? So... To add on to that, uh, you're going to be an expert at Captivate and Storyline. You're just asking for a person that's an expert drawer, right, or movie maker. I mean, Premiere is a, like, literally make films, right? And again, when you're, if you're going to be in Premiere, you're essentially saying you're going to use video, which video, and I love video, don't get me wrong, but video and After Effects, right? Those are those are motion 
related choices, right? You're, you're essentially choosing the message design based off of that. And subsequently, you know, you're essentially saying that from an instructional design perspective, you're saying the appropriate means of delivering this content is via video, right? Because that's what an instructional designer, in, at least in my mind, does, makes the decision that video makes sense here, okay? And subsequently, the same thing with InDesign, right? So, but on the flip side, like InDesign is a, a print publishing software, right? You know, so a desktop publishing uh, program, a piece of software from Adobe, right? So if you're going to be using InDesign, you are essentially saying, I'm going to print what I'm building here, or I'm going to deliver this in an EPUB format. You know, you're essentially, assume, you're, you're choosing that. If you're going to choose to use InDesign, you are choosing that someone will be reading this material, right? So recognize Captivate, right? After Effects, Premiere, InDesign, those things are all ways that we can do instruction, right? And that we that we want that that there's 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 job descriptions out there that are asking for advanced levels of skill in all of those things. I I do not know if that's possible, right? I mean, I'm being sure it's it's possible, right? Anything's possible, but I, I don't know how you're going to get that person at an entry level position. I just don't. But maybe they're finding that, right? So, you know, we get into a little bit more, like in this, I'll wrap it up here. But, you know, in the end, in the end, this, this whole experience was really formative, right? The, the, the going through these job descriptions. It made me go through my job description. It made me really think about the things that are said in that. And I know... The um, I know the reality is that very few people are doing the things that are, or maybe not, maybe few people, but <clears throat> few people in my experience are doing exactly what their job description says. But maybe that's part of like the systemic problem, right? You know that we're not really paying enough attention to those things. We're not paying enough attention to the things that we agree upon because, you know, when we think about jobs, we're, we're probably thinking about our the managers. We're probably thinking about the culture. We're probably and we're certainly thinking about the pay, and to some extent, you know, if the if the pay and the manager is okay, you you, you know, you you probably do probably anything right, so long as it's a, a good place to work and you're enjoying yourself. But that's a it's from an instructional design perspective, that's a difficult place for us to be because there's already, as we were able to tell, or as I was able to tell in this study, in this portion of the study with the job descriptions from LinkedIn, you know, we're in this place where it's super varied. We have a very incredibly varied, high expectation, low pay um, kind of field. And going into the subsequent interviews that we're going to cover in the next episodes and the focus groups, I wonder how that makes people feel. You know, I wonder how it feels to be have really high expectations, pretty low pay, and be the person that just kind of makes it work, right? Be the person that kind of fixes things, but maybe not getting that credit and maybe not getting that uh, compensation that in the end you, you're working pretty hard to do, right? And this gets into how we compensate teachers and educators and, and all that kind of stuff. And you know, maybe that needs to change. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people that already feel that way, but you know, this is bringing it home for me a little bit, right? Because 
you know, the, the number of job tasks that are being bestowed upon instructional designers is tremendous, right? And um, I don't think it should be overlooked. All right, so I appreciate you. I, I went a little long today, but I appreciate you guys sticking with me. Um, please tune in next time. We're going to be doing some fun. Uh, we'll have all of our guests uh, on the next one because we'll be doing the focus group. So I appreciate the time you uh, spent today with me in your earbuds. And if you have any questions or comments, reach out to me on LinkedIn or Instagram or Twitter or anything. I'll have all those links in there too. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later.